This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Imran Mahmood, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me, I'm delighted. Yeah, yeah. So Imran's um, in London and I'm in Sydney, as you all know. Um, He's a British writer and a criminal defence barrister with over 20 years' experience in the British Crown Court and Court of Appeal. His first novel, You Don't Know Me, was adapted for television by the BBC. His latest novel, I Know What I Saw, is another gripping psychological thriller. Now tell me, has the BBC gone to air yet? Because I looked for it. No, no, no. It's not gone to air yet. They've just finished shooting it. I think they're in post-production, um, which, you know, I don't really know much about. <laughs> no. But I think it involves them putting it all together and making sure, you know, the sound is in the right place and the, the dialogue is working and all of that. So they're doing all of that. And um, and then they're hoping to screen it somewhere in the new year, I think. But, but nobody really knows. This is what I've discovered from the um, director. He said, look, there's something about commissioning, which is, you know, and scheduling um, more particularly, which is a bit of a dark art. And they kind of keep to themselves and they have, have secret meetings behind curtains. And <laughs> Unlike the book industry that's so disciplined. <laughs> um, tell me, were you involved in any of the screenwriting, in any of the production? Well, um, I was lucky um, because it's a legal thriller in the sense that um, it, it has a lot of co- courtroom action. The premise of the whole thing is a speech by a defendant from a jury from a from a, um, from the dock, mm-hmm. and because that means that there were loads of technical questions that needed to be answered, I was lucky enough to be asked quite a lot by both by the director and by the um, screenwriter, and they would phone me up and say, well, "We're doing this scene, and this is what we've got the judge saying. Does that sound right to you? Is that how a judge would sound? Or, you know, in fact, what I was I was invited onto set, and as soon as I got there, the costume people got hold of me and said, can we just borrow you for t- 10 minutes? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and they said, oh, we just need to know, what would the this kind of judge be wearing in this court, and what would the barrister be wearing if he's in silk? And is this the right kind of gown? And all, all of these questions. So, yes, yeah, so I was involved and I was I was lucky to be involved and glad to be involved. Yeah, mm-hmm. thrilled about. Yeah. So are you still working? I mean, I know you're writing books, but are you doing both jobs? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I've got a case later on this afternoon. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. I've had to be uh, in full-time practice and kind of in full-time writing at the same time. So, yeah, so I haven't yet transitioned one from the other. I'm not even sure that I want to because I think doing the crime, certainly doing the crime, doing criminal trials, I think that kind of helps with the writing. Yeah, definitely. First-hand experience. Yeah. (laughs) I can take take some of the stories and kind of 
feed them into the plots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a friend of mine, Richard McHugh, um, he's an Australian author and he's also a barrister or a QC. I don't know if it's the same thing over there. Um, and he's still working. And I think it's a lot of his stories are large, largely come from his experience, which makes sense because that's fiction. But there is an Australian writer called Elliot Perlman who you might have heard of, and he stopped practicing and now writes full time. So I guess, you know, it's a mix. But I often wonder if it's left brain, right brain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's definitely something in that. But uh, the only thing I'd say about that is if you're practicing criminal law and you're doing jury trials, there's quite a bit of both involved. Certainly for me, because when I get to the stage where I am, uh, and I only defend, uh, but when I get to the stage where I'm doing these speeches or where I'm kind of presenting the case theory through the questions, then I try and do it in the form of a in the form of story because yes. story has the advantage of being able to stick in their mind. And yes. so, you know, people don't remember facts and they certainly don't remember lists of facts. But if you can tell them a story and weave them all in together, then they tend to be able to remember them. And a, a judge once said to me, it, you know, he, in fact, what he said was, it's no good if the jury can't hear what you're saying. Mm. And it's kind of the extension of that is, it's no good if the jury can't remember what you're saying. <laughs> because then, you know, you may as well be talking into the air. So, yeah, so there's always been a bit of storytelling involved. And a bit so, of yeah, fiction, so, I imagine. <laughs> almost no fiction. <laughs> that, that's I'm having a go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the, well, in fact... You can put a bit of fiction in as long as the fiction is an example. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say a friend of mine um, used to, to used to do his speeches, and he would say, "You know, I was telling my uh, children a bedtime story, and instead of telling them a story, I used the facts of this case. And as I was telling them the case, they said, "Daddy, that can't be true." And I said, "Not only." Might it be true, but a prosecutor, a grown-up, is going to try and convince 12 other grown-ups that that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. Hey, so I want to go back to how you came to writing, but firstly, I guess it's how you came to law. Talk to me about where you grew up. and Oh, okay. Um, and were you a young reader and a young writer? And what did you so, imagine you were going to be? Well, I grew up in Liverpool and I was born in 1969. So I was growing up in Liverpool in the kind of 70s era. And Liverpool in the 70s was was quite a lot like a, a lot of other places where there was high unemployment. There was a bit of kind of social deprivation. Things were kind of coming to a head. But we had a lot of kind of neo kind of Nazi racism was taking hold in the city. And, you know, it was all just kind of coming apart. And um, I went to a state school and the state school that I went to was not very nice. It was, there was quite a lot of quite heavy violence and, and, it, and it was quite racist. Um, but it had transitioned from being once, it, it, it had once been a really good school, I think. And it had transitioned into a state school and it had kind of crumbled. But the, one of the upshots was that one of the teachers or a couple of the teachers there were from the old school, uh, literally. And one of the guys was, I think he was an aristocrat because he would, he would turn up with his three, I mean, if you can just imagine a pretty violent boys' school, you know, with kind of 
filled with skinheads, really, and vandalism, and they were setting fire to buildings. And he turned up in this immaculate three-piece suit every day. And he had a gold pocket watch and a gold wristwatch. <laughs> and he spoke in this way that, you know, I'd never kind of come across before, not in real life. And it, it was his idea. When, when I was about, he taught Latin. So you can imagine Latin was the most popular subject yeah. in, a, <laughs> in this school. And I think there were only three or four kids in the year who were allowed to do it because it was too, um, you know, it was too taxing, really. And the, the atmosphere wasn't right and nobody really wanted to do it. And so I was one of the four and he taught it. And when I was 13, he just suggested to me one day, he said, oh, have you thought about becoming a barrister and I said that sounds like you're insulting me yeah (laughs) and he said no it's a profession and he described it to me and yeah I from that moment onwards I fell in love with the idea of it and then I'd watch the tv and I'd see the American lawyers in LA law or you know all of those kind of exciting programs where the where the lawyers would save the day and they would be walking up and down the jury box and delivering these speeches and that all of that really appealed to me and I think also just the idea of breaking away from you know the city and everything that was around me so yeah so that's when it it kind of gave I really like how you talk about that environment that state school and it can't have been easy and I think I can, I can imagine what that environment was like in my head. I mean, we have similar schools here, but also, you know, the poverty, the racism. And then you find the magic moment of the teacher telling you that you're going to be, you know, you should be a barrister. I like that. I like that positivity, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether I, I, I can claim it as positivity or whether it was, in fact, a way of shutting everything else out because... There were, there were days that we couldn't be allowed on there were of the kind of um Asian I say Asian, but I mean basically Pakistani children. Yes. There were six of us. And I one of them was my brother and another one was a cousin. In the, <laughs> the whole school. Three, in the whole school. And the other two yeah. or three were kids we knew and you know from the community. And there were times when we couldn't be let out of class. Um at break time, because we'd be, I'm not going to say killed, but we would be chased by, sometimes by the whole school. And so we would be sometimes, not locked in, but kept in school. Separated. Separated um, for our safety. And I remember once we complained to the school about it and said, look, you know, this isn't really on. on." And the headmaster said, you know, I agree with you, but it's for your I don't safety. know what else you think we can do about this. There's nothing else we can do about it. And so, yeah, so just getting back to your question, it was a way of shutting all of that out. And, of course, we knew that the way out, of, the way to climb out of the kind of desperation was through study. And that was something that my parents had always instilled in us, you know, that you have to study because, you know, they were first-generation immigrants and dad was working in factories and he was... Un- unlettered, I think is the polite way of saying it, but he couldn't read or write in English. You know, my mother was very young. She, at that time, she couldn't really speak English that well. She, I mean, she does now fluently, but at that time she couldn't. But what, the one thing that they were insistent on was that we studied our way out of our circumstances because it was a privilege for them. It was a real, pri- you know, even though the school was terrible, it was still a real privilege. 
Mm. And they saw it as a real privilege because they, you know, they never had that opportunity. Mm. Do you know, I often think about that because I'm Lebanese Australian and my parents were first generation Lebanese and they came to this country to give us a better life. You know, we were in a very poor area, but my school didn't, wasn't as rough as yours, I don't think. But the notion of us doing better than them only hit me because I was so self-centered, I think, when I was younger, you know, and then pushing me in different directions. And But that moment didn't come to me until I left school and finally got a job that I liked. And I thought, oh, now I get it. They wanted a better life for me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny you should uh, say that because I was having a similar conversation with with a friend of mine, but in in slightly different terms. And the, the thing that I, <laughs> the thing that I wondered about was, I'd always grown up with this almost predictable path where I where, where I was going to exceed my parents, mm. and you know, uh, but that's the whole point of them coming out immigrating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, which was which was the whole point. And so I'd always grown up with that, and my. You know, there was never really a, uh, under any scrutiny. And I'd always and I'd gone through life knowing that this was a kind of natural order of things or thinking it was. And then I'd meet, then I met other people at university and they were, you know, white middle class people. And for the first time I stopped and I thought, I felt quite sorry for them because I, because I, I couldn't cope with the idea that they might not exceed their parents and they might not exceed their circumstances and yeah I found that quite difficult to process so I thought I wonder what it must be like for them not to be able to do that does that make you feel as if you'd failed in a way or but that's going to be your children though (laughs) yeah probably which is why when my daughter my daughter I've got two daughters one of them is five uh, coming up to six and so uh, we asked her what she wanted to be, and because I, I, I'm a barrister, my, my wife is a solicitor, in fact. And uh, so we asked her what she wanted to be, and she's decided that she wants to be a princess, astronaut, doctor. So mm. we're kind of That's working. It's a good on combination. All That's a great. <laughs> co- Can you imagine going up to space in a tutu? That's lovely with a crown. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can probably organise it. I mean. But that, it, it is a question because I, I don't have children, but, you know, my sisters do. And I often look at them and think, you know, they're grown up now, like the eldest one I think is 40. But I look at her and I just think we broke the cycle, right? But what is the responsibility of that generation? Because you can't always get better. Like it's not Apple here, you know, it's not Google. <laughs> These are humans we're dealing with. Yeah, well, I think the emphasis has changed and I, I hope it's changed because when, you know, the, the emphasis very much when I was growing up was that your success was measured in terms of your profession. Yes. Uh, if you had a professional, you know, you, whatever you did, whatever your metier was, so it was measured in terms of that or it was measured in terms of wealth very little of it was measured in terms of your kind of personal happiness. Yes. And I think we, we we are slightly now beginning to restructure our the way that we measure our value and what we want from life. We talk about work-life balance and, you know, that seemed to be like a foray into that idea where we would, ex- you know, people were experimenting with the idea about whether you, you can have that balance. And I think, more and more people are hopefully going to think, well, it's working for a living is one thing. It's a necessity. But maybe, you know, there are other things which are more important. And, 
if I spend my time usefully doing something else, which is valuable in a different way and it makes me happy, then, then I succeed my predecessors in that way. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm already seeing that, Amron, because what's happening with the people that work for me, for instance, the younger people, they're more affluent than I was at that age. You know, they're supported by their parents quite well. They don't have the pressure to earn money like we did. And so they only work three or four days a week. They're not interested in working full time because they do have the work-life balance. They have other interests. They do other things. It's, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I just worked morning, day and night. I mean, that's what I thought I had to do, you know. But I, I do think the next generation, right, I think it's different. I think that we will be defined in other ways. Hey, I want to go back a little bit too, and then I, I just want to get to how you came to writing. But I was very, very much um, Lebanese. Like, you know, even though I was born here, I felt, and I still do, I feel more Lebanese than I do Australian. But when I was growing up, that wasn't a badge of honour. I was very embarrassed about it. Like, you know, my mother would send us to school with Lebanese bread rolls and falafel and I'd just think, oh, God, can't we just be like the other kids? <laughs> and, you know, she had this thing about knitting our cardigans. You know, there were six of us and every winter we would show up, showed up with big cable cardigans and everybody Matching. else had it. Yeah, and everybody else had a machine-knitted one. I mean, I just wanted a store-bought cardigan so much, you know. But then there was the moment when I realised that actually that is a privilege to have that diversity, to have that background. And that didn't come until later, until I grew up. I mean, did that happen for you? Yeah, very much so. Um, and probably a similar arc. So, you know, when I was growing up, yeah. I, I remember that we would, we would tr- we had friends and relatives a hundred or something miles away and we would get in the car and we would drive on the motorway there, and it was huge enterprise even though it was 100 miles away we pack and we'd something we'd stay sometimes a couple of a couple of days but the thing i remember was on the way we'd stop to have lunch but we wouldn't stop at the services we would stop on the verge of the motorway <laughs> where there was a big slope yeah. and we would sit on the top of the slope and we'd eat samosas <laughs> and you know mum would pour some tea out of a flask and at that time, I was thinking, why can't we just go to the yeah. like, and like have burgers? People. Yeah, and have burgers and chips. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but then, as you say, there was a time when you know that all changed, and I realised that there was wealth in the uh, culture, and there was you know, that diversity gives you something that you can't legislate for, you can't pay for, you can't 
acquire in any other way. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in the blood and it gets into the skin very early on. It has a value that you can't measure, I think. Mm, mm, I love it, you know, now. <laughs> so I want to talk about, so you, you have this thriving career and you have a young family and you have a wife and what possesses you to start writing? I mean, where did you find the time? Well, <laughs> I keep asking myself that question. Yeah. So it started. So, so I was like, uh, exactly as you described it, when, when I was younger, I was working all the hours. Yeah. And I would sometimes leave chambers at 11 o'clock at night yeah. or midnight and think nothing of it. And, and I would go in at weekends yeah. and think nothing of it. And if I didn't go in at weekend, it felt wrong. I felt as if I was kind of skiving off. And so kind of life kind of travelled on and it all slightly changed when I got married because my wife was working in a nine-to-five job and she did not understand this idea of me working until mm-hmm. 11 o'clock. And so I didn't after that. But I think I had all of this excess energy still, you know, which had become a habit um, to kind of just to work or to do something. And what I started to do was when I was in court and I was waiting for, either waiting to get on or waiting for a verdict or just kind of hanging around, I would pick up the laptop and just start writing all. Yeah, in fact, on the trains, on the way to court, if I was going to a court, which was 100 or 200 miles away, I'd have two or three hours on the train to write. And I'd just start to write just because it, I felt as if there was, you know, I just needed to get it out of whatever it was out of my system. It was a... Oh, I didn't know this then. I think we all have a kind of creative urge to fulfil. And if we don't, I, I don't think it's very healthy. And I think it's the same with, uh, when we talking about having a balanced life, I think probably life has a lot of different components. And if you can feed all of them, then you probably are healthier. And so, you know, the usual stuff, work and food and nutrition and all that. But I think there's a, component which is to do with artistic expression and a component to do with spirituality and I think if we don't as I say indulge them but if we don't exercise those areas of our lives I think we suffer and it's for me it wasn't really a positive choice in that way I didn't sit there and think well I better do the artistic expression you know like a kind of gym <laughs> exercise <laughs> it, it was just there and it felt like it had to be re- released somehow was the story in your head? Did the story come first? So the story, the way the story came in, in book one, which was You Don't Know Me, was that I was sitting in a courtroom writing a speech for a defendant in a murder trial. And as I was writing it, I thought, oh, well, he wouldn't say that. If he was writing it, he would say it in this way. And or for him, this wouldn't be as important as this thing, which was more to do with you know, the circumstances of his life or his upbringing. So, you know, my lawyer brain would say the reason he had this gun in his possession was X. But my, but the kind of human side of that explanation was more to do with, oh, the reason I had this gun was because when I was growing up, I witnessed my father almost murdering my mother. That was the reason I had a gun. That was the reason I came into contact with this firearm. And the reason that happened was because these were our circumstances, or my father was a crack addict, or whatever the thing was. And I thought, I wonder what that story would sound like if the defendant himself had to do the speech. 
so that I wasn't there as the bridge between him and the jury. It was a he was speaking directly to them, and so that's what that's why you don't know me is that thing. That's what, it's a speech that he's done, and that's how that was born. It was a simple <laughs> act of kind of. When did you know it was a book? When did you think, oh, well, now I've got to navigate the world of getting published? I mean, at what point did that happen? So what I did was I think I just, I, it, it kind of felt like it wrote itself. I finished it in probably six months and then I sent it off. I, I'd once written a book a couple of years before that and I'd sent it off and had no, I sent it off to five agents and I had no interest from anyone. And so I'd kind of given up at that point uh, any aspirations of writing anything. And then when I sent this off to five agents, I got five replies. Oh, wow. And they were all saying, yeah, can we see the rest of it? Mm. So I, I think at that point I knew I, I was onto something. But just then, a little something. It was, <laughs> well. <laughs> five agents, just something little. Yeah. <laughs> well, well. The funny thing about it was, I, the first agent I met said, really like this, but we're going to have to change all of it. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean all of it? And he said, yeah, no, no, we are going to have to change all of it. Yeah. And I said, do you mean all of it? And he went, yeah, yeah, all of it. Yeah, yeah. But the second agent I saw said, <laughs> you really like it. And I said, so how much of it do you need to change? And she said, what? And I said, what, 50%, all of it? And she went, no, we that we don't we don't need to change any of it. Yeah. <laughs> I went, really? Okay, you're hired. <laughs> I wonder what the first agent saw. Well, obviously he saw the right, didn't like the story, but maybe liked the writing. I, I think that's what it was. I think he liked the concept of it, which was right. yeah, got it. kind of new because yes. um, it hadn't been done before, this kind of speech. But um, I think they were more literary agents and I hadn't yeah. really re- probably researched it well enough. Yeah. And um, did you know you're writing genre fiction then? Did you know that, that you're no. probably writing crime? No. <laughs> no. I think the time I realised was when it, it was punted off to the publishers and the publishers all came back and said, oh, we don't really know where to place this. And my agent phoned me and said, oh, this is what they're saying. And I said, well, isn't the answer to that bookshops? Aren't they going to place it with bookshops? <laughs> she said, no, 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 they don't know which kind of where to place it. And I said, I don't really know what you mean. Mm. And she said, you know, is, is it true crime? Is it crime? Is it? And I said, does that does that matter? She went, no, yeah, yeah, yeah hugely. <laughs> I said, why? Because my experience of of it was as a reader, and I would go into a bookshop, and you know, one day I would buy Donna Tartt and read a secret history, and the next day I would buy, you know, the number one ladies detective agency, yeah. which was mm-hmm. cozy crime. And but I never thought. Oh, let me buy some cosy crime today. I just thought oh, I quite like the <laughs> sound of this, and I, did, I had no idea that it was arranged in that way. Yeah, because yeah. probably I was buying whatever was in the chart, and the chart was the kind of mix mm. of you know what was on offer. So it was only when they said, "Yeah, we don't know where to place it," that I suddenly began to understand. Oh, well, look, this is a bit more complicated than I thought it was. Mm. I just we've got to go soon because we've gone over. But what I want to ask you, which I think is is interesting. So I think for certain your job, your day job as a barrister influences your fiction. Does your fiction influence your day job? <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's because um, the, the, the fiction is a very kind of long form of, of telling the story. And 
whatever story you're telling, particularly in, in criminal cases, to a jury is a very short, very short kind of format. And you, know, you have to do a speech within 20 minutes or 30, uh, and at the most, maybe 40. Because people don't have the attention span. And I think people's attention spans over decades, particularly since the arrival of the smartphone, I think their attention spans have decreased. And, and I include myself in that pool. Mm. You know, I, uh, you know I used to read the newspaper and I would sit down with, with a broadsheet and spend three hours going through it on a Sunday. Now I am scanning for a nugget and I want the whole story in three seconds, and then I want to move on to the next news story, which which is always going to be delivered in three seconds. And that's and I think the slightly the phone has done that to my attention span. I think it's done it to everyone's. And so now I can see this when I'm doing jewelry speeches that people don't have that attention span any longer. So I have to, have to be short, mm, and you have to just yeah. And whereas you you can you can spend a week in it you know in a novel dealing with you know the, what the court looks like mm. <laughs> you can't you just can't don't have the time to do that in the mm. in, do you know in, what in gives speech. me great hope though because when you say things like that it makes me so sad but people are still reading and they're still reading long form and particularly in this pandemic I'm sure it's the same in the UK but in Australia people have really taken to books you know there are different yeah. formats now people are listening to audio which I quite love as well but they are back to long form. So yeah, they can uh, uh, yeah. have that span when they when they want to, you know. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. So when, I, I think when it comes to news and information, mm, it's the attention span contracted. Yeah. But when it comes to entertainment, I think we've gone the other way, and I think our attention span has expanded, and it's become, as you say, more people are reading, and they're more discerning about what they're reading, and they're a bit more experimental about what they're reading, and mm. they want with things which are new. And I think th- that process of reading also restructures your kind of mental structure, and it makes you better. Mm. And I think it eases, soothes your kind of, for me, it soothes my worries. It makes me, it helps me restructure the day, helps me put everything back into context. And I think that it's that process of slowing the brain down and letting it relax and letting it, the imagination travel. Mm. And you know, letting your brain do some of its own work rather than just sitting there and having stuff fed to you. Mm. And I think that's why reading has has had a resurgence because it's so necessary now mm. to read for our health. Mm. I think Absolutely. we can't, we wouldn't be able to survive as well without it. No. no. All right. Well, we need you to keep writing so we can keep <laughs> reading. <laughs> Imran, thank you, <laughs> thank you so thank much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for having me. It's been really, a really, really interesting and welcome uh, diversion for me. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.